All right. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 6, verse 39. Luke 6, 39. I've already preached a sermon once this morning, but none of you are here, so I'm going to do it again. <laughs> so it should be better the second time since I was here at 9.30 and you guys weren't. Okay. Why don't we stand and read Luke 6.39. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Let's pray. Lord, we are looking forward to diving into yet another one of your teachings that you gave to these large crowds in, in Galilee. Um, we want to embrace the teaching that you gave them and apply it to our own, li our own lives. So Lord, open our hearts now to, and our minds to see the truth that's in here. These are not easy words. It doesn't always, at first glance, seem like these are all connected. But you intended them to be and you were teaching in a very clear and precise way. So help us 2,000 years later removed to understand the truth that was intended. And I pray, God, that we would be open because your teaching on taking the log out of our own eye before Judges Speck and the others is very important. Because all of us probably right now have logs in our eyes and we don't even know it. I pray, God, as I'm speaking, that you would, in your spirit, point out categories in our lives that are evident so that we can walk away uh, with something to deal with with you so that we can become more like you. Uh, we want to, uh, of course, honor you with the way we live. In Christ's name, amen. Well, welcome back to our series on parables. As of today's date, we've completed three of approximately 40 parables that Jesus taught and were recorded in the New Testament. And today, obviously, we're tackling our fourth parable. Now, I realize, realize I've said this every single week, um, but I just want to remind you once again as to why we're doing parables and what they're designed to do. If you're anything like me, repetition stands for, to improve my understanding of things. Um, basically, parables are earthly stories to communicate a heavenly truth. Or another way of saying it, or perhaps a better way of saying it, is that they're fictional stories designed to convey a spiritual truth by way of comparison. So again, they're fictional stories designed to convey a spiritual truth by way of comparison. So when we get the comparison correct, we understand the parable well, 
and it's my job and your and your job in the dialogue to come up with the understand uh, correct understanding so that we understand the truth that Jesus is trying to convey to us. Now I think so far in the last three parables we've done that the Lord would be a, uh, an approval of what we've come up with as a spiritual truth. And I think we've represented him well. Um, but again, the, um, these are tough to go through. And so um, my prayer this morning is that this would be the case once again. It was interesting. I was listening to John MacArthur preach on this. And um, when I was reading these verses, I'm like, Lord, I do not understand why 39 and 40 are there. I don't understand why 41 comes after 40. I don't understand why 43 comes after 42. I was like, these seem to be all disconnected, disjointed. And when I listened to him, his introduction, he said this. He goes, when I was preparing this passage, I don't know why all the commentators struggle so much to make sense of this parable. They're all over the place in their understanding of how these things are all linked. And then he goes on to say, but I think the truth is like pretty plain and straightforward. And all I'm saying is I was grateful to hear that when he said that because I'm thinking, okay, he, this, I think he wrote his sermon in 2001. So 18 years ago, he's reading commentaries saying, I don't get why everyone's all over the map with what Jesus is trying to say here. And so, you know, it gave me some comfort to know that I'm not in the only, I'm not rocking the same boat here when it comes to complexity of understanding Jesus' words. However, I think there are some pretty plain truths and I think the Lord has helped me understand exactly what's going on here. So let's uncover the context, which is what we do every single week. You can't understand a parable unless you understand what comes before and what comes after. Just so you know, that's an important way to study. If you ever want to study a passage well, study what comes before it and what comes after it, because that's always sandwiched in between the two. So we find in Luke 6, which is the chapter we're in, Jesus in Galilee, early on in his ministry. He has just chosen 12 of his disciples, and we know that he's gained quick popularity. Because in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 6, large crowds have gathered from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal region to hear him speak and to be healed of their diseases. Now, it's during this gathering of these large crowds that Jesus takes the opportunity to deliver what has arguably become the most famous of all his sermons recorded in the New Testament. This, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now what made it so famous, and makes it famous even today, is the nature of its radical content. You see, what Jesus was teaching was completely against the Jewish social, cultural, and religious norms of the day. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually true for us as well. Some of Jesus' teachings here are very difficult for our culture to understand and to put into practice. For example, in verse 27, in verse 27, he says, you're expected to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, not hate them. Verse 29, you're not to be retaliatory as a person. You're, not, you're to turn the other cheek when someone strikes you. In verse 30, you're told to do good by lending to others with no expectation of anything in return. In verse 30, you're told to be free of all judgment and condemnation. And these are just to name a few of the things that Jesus is asking of his followers. Now this was an incredibly important teaching, this Sermon on the Mount, and a pivotal moment in the life of the crowds. You see, up to this point in verse 18, 
Luke records that they had come to see Jesus in order to, now watch this, hear him. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. That's the reason they gathered. They wanted to hear what he had to say and they wanted to be cured of their diseases. But what the Sermon on the Mount reveals is that for Jesus, this was not enough. If they wanted to follow him, hearing him wasn't enough. If they wanted to follow him, being healed and experiencing his power was not enough. It wasn't enough. What he wanted from these men and women was a radical transformation in the way they lived. This is going to be a life, if you want to be a disciple of mine, Jesus says, it's going to be marked by obedience to my word. It's going to be marked by obedience to my word. This is the context before the Sermon on the Mount, which is very clear. You know, they're gathering to hear, and he says, listen, and be healed. He says, listen, crowds, you want to be my disciple? You've come this far. You've shown some interest. You want to follow me and truly call me the Messiah? Call me Lord? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not be self-righteous in your judgment. Don't condemn people. Lend with no expectation, etc., etc., etc. It's what you do that makes you a disciple of mine. Look at afterwards in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Yeah, but Lord, we're here. We're listening to you. We've come to be healed. We believe you can heal. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? The parable is sandwiched in between a desire for the Lord to say, if you want to be my disciple, a true disciple obeys my teaching. It blankets, it precedes and proceeds the parable. Therefore, the parable has to be about true discipleship in the category of the way we live in response to Jesus. It has to be that. So let's pick it up. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus uses these two illustrations to emphasize the necessity of how careful we all must be in terms of who we choose to follow. I'll say that again. He uses these illustrations to emphasize the necessity of how careful all of us need to be in terms of who we choose to follow. Who is going to be the major spiritual influence in our lives that we are going to mark our lives out by? Who are we, who are we going to trust to be our guide, to be our teacher? A blind man leading a blind man, a blind guide leading a blind person is self-evident. It's going to end in disaster. I was reminded of that in Israel when uh, we were there this February. We, uh, on near the end of our trip, we had the chance to go to the temple and go into Hezekiah's tunnel. And it starts on the inside of the city and it's underneath the ground and is dug through the stone onto the outside. And uh, a guy by the name of Bob from Edmonton, a pastor there that we met on the trip, and Dan Jensen and myself uh, decided to go on the Hezekiah, Hezekiah's tunnel tour. And it's pitch black in there. Like, you, it's just, I mean, remember, remember it's underground, it's stone, so it's pitch black. 
And at the check-in point, they give you a little keychain with a light on it, a little LED light. And uh, you, you hold that keychain light so that you can see yourself through the tunnel. The tunnel is pretty small. Um, I'm only 5'8", but I had to duck at certain parts, like to duck my head to walk underneath, and I was shoulder to shoulder at certain parts of the tunnel. But other parts are quite wide. You know, I know someone six, like Daniel could walk fully upright. So the tunnel is built. Remember again, like this is back in 2,000 years ago, they're not building it for precision, they're building it to bring water into the city in case they get besieged. Talked about that last week on the sermon. So it had to be big enough to do construction to just bring water into the city. So we're going along and things are going really well. And me, I was put in front as the leader. So I had the light, and so the men behind me are following me with the light and we're all in safety. Me being the typical boy, that doesn't go away even when you're 40, the boy attitude, I thought, I'm gonna turn my light off and see how far I can get before I like, you know, run into danger. So I turned my light off, but Dan and Bob are behind me, so they're okay because they can, you know, I'm their guy. I go about 10 meters. Oh, my light, by the way, I could see that the tunnel was pretty big, so I thought, I'm just gonna keep walking, I'm gonna guess when it comes to an end, I'm gonna be safe. So I get, I start walking, I go about 10, 15 meters, and I thought, I don't know, man, I something in my gut's like, I'm, I'm, I, so I better turn my light on just in case, because I feel like I'm gonna run into something. I turn my light on, and sure enough, there's a jagged rock sticking out the tunnel like inches from my head, right when I turned the light on, which I couldn't see from, when, from the distance when I first started. And I thought, holy smokes. And then, what the funny thing was, is like, if I hadn't turned that light on, I would have smoked my head and probably had to get stitches in a hospital in Jerusalem. A blind guide will lead, is not a good guide. Blind guide's not a good guide. I would have brought Dan and Bob into peril if I had uh, smoked my head and, they, and I didn't say anything and they smoked theirs behind me. So, again, Jesus is, is giving a pretty strong illustration here. We would have both fallen into a pit. Now this is important because of what Jesus is saying. He's giving some pretty radical teaching, isn't he? Who were the spiritual leaders in Israel back then? The Pharisees. Who also is vying for these guys' uh, in, uh, influence? Probably their, their upbringing, grandma and grandpa back home. You know, a lot of people are telling them how to live a life for God. Jesus is standing up and saying, I'm gonna throw your whole world view upside down on its head by these radical teachings. Who are you gonna follow? Are you gonna follow someone blindly? Or are you gonna follow me? He gives a second illustration here in verse 40. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone who happens to be fully trained will be like his teacher. I think God has been giving me material this week. I was, uh, I was reminded of this last week while being in Lethbridge. Um, because I was visiting my friend who taught me violin. His name's Ed. He taught me for 15 years. 15 years. And uh, I went there to visit him. He's now in a home. He's moved out of his house and he's in a, in a seniors care center. I go there and one of our old bandmates that we used to play with 20 years ago uh, was performing at the seniors lodge. And so Eddie said, bring your fiddle up and we'll play. So I brought my fiddle and we, we, I get there and Tom's about to play in the, in the lobby. And Eddie says, let's have a quick practice. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we start playing the tunes that we used to play together with Tom back in the day. And uh, Eddie's 83 now. And I've never been in my life even 
remotely close to him in ability. Not even close. I mean, Eddie played the Edmonton Symphony. He played with Ian Tyson. He's recorded on one of every fiddle concerts he's ever gone in. Like, the guy is a world-class violinist. So I'm there, never been able to hold a candle to him. But he's 83 and he's lost his memory. So we're, we're in the, in the warm-up, in the, in the room, he's uh, struggling to remember his runs. And I said to him, Eddie, let me show you what you taught me. I showed him his runs. And he's like, oh yeah, that's right. And we went out on stage and played. During this performance, because of adrenaline and different things, he fraught, forgot again when it came to his opportunity to do a solo. And he leaned across, he yelled across the room, because I remember on opposite sides, he goes, Andrew, help me out! And I'm like, okay, and I jumped in and played where, where, where he would normally play. Why could he ask me to do that? He trained me for 15 years. I'm not above Eddie, I never will be. But after I was fully trained by him, I was like him. I could show him his runs, I could tell him what to do. I could even take over in that moment, but I'll never be greater than him. I only know what he knows. If I want to learn more, I have to go to another teacher, don't I? What's even more funny is when I walked, when I was walking with him to the performance, one of the care workers says, who is that? Is that your son? And Eddie says, no, that's my pupil. <laughs> he's never called me that in his entire life. He usually said he's my friend. Again, I think God was giving me material because he says, he's my pupil. And I love that. A pupil is never above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. Interesting. But again, Jesus' point is pretty clear. There's spiritual teachers vying for your allegiance. There's people out there who are going to tell you how to live a life to God. Right now, they might say you to hate your enemy. Right now, they say you, you expect money back when you lend it. Or you have the right to be self-righteous in your judgment because you're God's chosen people. You're better than those Gentiles. You're better than those Samaritans. You have every right to call down thunder on those people if you want and so on. Right? That's the culture. Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll never be above me. But once you've been fully trained, you'll be like me. You'll be like me. In what way? Character. Loving your enemies is a character issue. Lending to those with no expectation and not being retaliatory, those are character issues. It's not about hearing the word anymore. It's about living the word out once you've heard it. So that's really important, church. Now, again, this is also important because of what Jesus has to say next. Verse 41. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out of the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Before we look at this in detail, I want to clear up any misunderstanding that people might get and often run into regarding these verses, especially in relation to verse 37. You see, in verse 37, Jesus says this, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not judge, 
and you will not be judged. But then in verse 42, he says, go take the speck out that's in your brother's eye. What does that mean? It means you have to judge someone, doesn't it? If I go to take a speck out of your eye, I have to make a judgment call that there's a speck in there. So we have to reconcile, do not judge, but yet over here you can judge. How do we work this out? Well, Jesus was not condemning making judgments in all circumstances. The type of judgment he's speaking about in in verse 37 is judgment that is rooted in self-righteousness. The I am better than you type scenarios. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18.10. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. That's the kind of self-righteous judgment Jesus is warning against. Not that all judgment is wrong. What Jesus is making clear in verses 41 through 43 is there's times when judgment is permitted, but there's a way, there's a way in which you are to judge. There's qualifications for the way you judge. And this is what we're going to look at now. You're to take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of another's. So let me just say it this way. What Jesus is really saying is this. There needs to be a self-examination of sin in your own life before you point out the sin in another's. There needs to be a self-examination of sin in your own life before you point out sin in another's. According to Christ here, if you fail to do this, you are a hypocrite. Strong language. I know God is love, but part of love is also calling people into account. (laughs) You do that as parents, right? You love your children, so you correct them. That's part of being loving. So, you're called a hypocrite if you fail to do this. And the reason is, is that we, from Christ's point of view, is when you do this, or I do this, it shows that we're more concerned about the sin in someone else's life than we are of the sin in our own. We're more concerned about someone else's sin than the sin in our own. Now, some of you are auditory in your learning. Some of you are kinesthetic in your learning. And some of you are visual. So let me help you understand what Jesus is saying here. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Before you look at the little speck that you can't even see in someone else's eye in terms of the sin that they have, make sure you do a self-examination of the sin that's in your own life. And take that log out before you go and talk to somebody. There are hundreds of examples I can give of hypocrisy. Let me, if you ever want to read an incredible chapter in hypocrisy, Matthew 23. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he lays out an entire chapter, verse after verse after verse, in the ways in which they're hypocritical. It's a very good study, if you ever want to do that, just to read it. Um, Look at all the ways in which they're hypocritical. But let me give you two practical ways that I think are important for us, just to help you out, even though you understand hypocrisy well. Hypocrisy is when you go up to somebody, and you're quick to point out... um, or become angry with someone who has failed to keep a promise to you. They made you a promise um, and they failed to uphold it and so you become angry with them and want to just lambaste them. However, 
you've been known lately in your own life to fail to make prom meet promises on a regular basis. That's what you're known for, and you go and tell somebody else, how dare you fail to meet that one promise. Jesus is saying, take that log out of your own eye before you go criticize someone else about how they failed to uphold a promise to you. This is especially true in places like work. I've, I've heard people complain about a contractor, you know, like uh, this contractor, they told me they were going to show up at this time and do that and do this and uphold their standards for this money, and they never did it. And that same person who's in contract work fails to uphold their promises all the time in terms of delivering some services. That's called hip hypocrisy. How about if we're quick to condemn a parent who loses their temper with their kid? So we see a parent getting super angry, exasperated their child. Uh, the child isn't even at fault even, but the, the, the parent loses a, their, their cool. And so you go up and you think in your mind, you go to the person and say, how dare you like, behave like that as a Christian and talk to your kids like that. However, you, you as the spouse will go home and, and deal with the spouse, your other spouse in the exact same way. So as a parent, you have a temper anger problem with your children, but you then go and you don't like that with others, but then you go home and angry with your spouse on a regular basis. Anger is the same, it's the same rooted issue, but it's just deflected to do different types of people. Again, we are to take the log out of our own eye. We're not to talk to the person about their parenting until we deal with our own life and our spouse the way we treat them at home. Then we have a right to talk about someone else's parenting, Jesus says. Again, you get the point. There's so many illustrations we could give. So, because this is so important then, how do we rightly do this? I've already given some clues. I want to give you a four-step process to correcting a brother or sister with sin in their life. Okay? This is important. How do we... This is, a, this is called Log Surgery 101. Okay? Log Surgery 101. I should have thought of that earlier. Number one. Self-examination. We've already said that. Self-examination. Take time to reflect and pray. Uh, go through scripture and ask the Lord to search your heart. Psalm 139.23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Now watch this. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You know why I like that verse? David is saying this. I'm coming to you, God, right now with a clean mind. Like, I think I'm good with you. He says, but see if there's an offensive way in me. So he believes that God can examine him and reveal things to him that he doesn't even know about himself. That's super important. So all of us right now, we might think, well, nothing's coming to mind in my own life. You pray and say, Lord, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to, into everlasting ways. And he will come through, through his spirit and teach you what those things are. If sin is revealed, if sin is revealed, step two is you confess it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So all of this is private so far. Self-examination in, in your own private prayer life, reading the scriptures, uh, you confess the sin, this is also going on privately. Third step, demonstrate fruit of repentance. This is last week's sermon. Last week's sermon. Okay? Last week's parable. You make a commitment between you and God that this area of your life will be no longer part of your life. 
If you're a promise breaker, or you have an anger problem, or whatever, if you're a gossiper, whatever it is, you make a commitment between you and the Lord that you are going to stop because of what He did for you on the cross. He died for those things, so you're going to honor Him with your life going forward. We bear fruits of repentance. Secondly, this is not always necessary because it depends on situation to situation, uh, but you may want to seek reconciliation with the person you offended. It might require that depending on the situation, and I'm not going to get into that now because um, it would, like, yeah, there's too many examples we could go through. But anyway, it might require you going to the person and seeking forgiveness and trying to reconcile that relationship. Then, once those things are done, you can now go to the other person and remove the speck. And here's how you do it. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, speck, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they're something when they are not, i.e. log, uh, they deceive themselves. Each one should, not, should test their own actions. They then, can, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. NIV translation. The key here, church, is the purpose of taking the speck out. And the way you do it, A, is with gentleness. So you do it with an attitude of gentleness. But the key here is restoration. Self-righteous judgment isn't about restoration. It's to make you elevate yourself above someone else and to make you look like you're spiritually better than they are. That's self-righteous judgment. Thank God I'm not like the other tax collector, says the Pharisee, right? This kind of judgment is restoration in mind, not humiliation and not condemnation. So we're not to come to the person with a spirit of pride or spiritual superiority. We come with a spirit of care and concern for a fellow brother or sister because they've fallen, and we want them to be restored with God and the Christian community if they've offended anyone. This is the key in these verses. What this does, church, is a, it's a good reminder to us too, because it shows that all of us, when we come in this way, are in need of God's mercy, right? If you come in this way, you come with this attitude, okay, I've been a forgiven sinner, they've been a forgiven sinner, at this moment, they happen to be the one in sin, but tomorrow, it could be me. <laughs> tomorrow, it could be me. So the way I treat this person's imperative because I want them to treat me, I want to treat them the way, I'm going to this, yeah, you get the point. I'm terrible sometimes on the fly. Yeah, but I want the reciprocal treatment for the way I deal with this person. Restoration is key, church. And it's a good reminder that we're all in need of God's mercy. So that's the process if we find sin. What's the process if there is no sin? So we do self-examination, you can't find anything, in your own personal life, God reveals nothing to you. You go right from step one, straight to step four. You go right to Galatians 6. You can avoid the other two. So, Jesus has made it clear. 
those who choose to be followers of his cannot be self-righteous. They can't be hypocritical. And there's a way to live that shows that you're in relationship to God. If you want to genuinely become one of his disciples, you're to put this old way of life, this old cultural, custom, social norms that you've been raised with, put them behind and embrace the teachings and the new life that he's offering. That's the context so far. And so Jesus, with this in mind, gives one more illustration to make his point. In verse 43, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Jesus' illustration, of course, is simple, but very profound. See, the fruit of a tree, according to Jesus, is an indicator of the health of the tree. Right? The fruit on a tree is the indicator of the health of a tree. Good fruit, healthy tree. Bad fruit, rotten tree. In other words, the tree only produces what's in the tree's nature. You catch that? The, 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 the tree only can produce what the tree's nature is. And why this is so important, of course, and you can see right through Jesus' words here, is he's not talking about trees. He's talking about people, about what people are like and how he wants us to be. He says, you want to know the nature of a person? You can tell by the way they live the way they behave, the words they say. It's evident. There's no guessing game here. In other words, if you want to know who the true followers of mine are, you will know by the way they live. They will love their enemies. <laughs> they will forgive without end. They will lend without expectation. They won't retaliate, and so on and so forth. It'll be evident, self-evident. The nature of the person will, will be very clear. Now this is important. There's some people in the church that say this, and I used to be one of them, and I understand why they say this, but there's some people within the Christian community that will talk in this way. Nobody can know who a Christian is, only God knows the heart. I used to say that. I used to believe that. I don't believe that anymore. I get it. There are sometimes some people are conundrums. I get that. So we'll put the, the minuscule few over here. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you will know people by their fruit. It is evident who belongs to me. They will produce good fruit. They will embrace my teachings. This is really important, church. Look at first, first John 3, 7 and 10. This is, this is not only Jesus saying this, and me repeating what Jesus believes, this is John, his top three disciples, saying this. Make sure no one deceives you, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. Um, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Right? The one who practices righteousness, practice, you know, if you practice hockey or practice piano, you're constantly at it, right? Constantly at it. It's a, nor it's a norm in your life. Something you dedicate yourself to. 
If you practice, uh, the one who practices righteousness, embraces the teachings of Jesus Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. What you're known for. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who loves his brother. And that's not birth brother, that's spiritual brother, right? This is important. Jesus makes it clear. There's no good tree which produces bad fruit. Right? The nature of the person, the, the, the actions will reveal the nature of the person. And this is why Jesus is teaching this. He wants, says, I want you to be fruit producers. Embrace my teachings. Don't follow the blind teachers out there. Follow me. If I fully train you, you'll be like me. Embrace my ways. And life will look different as a follower of mine. And this is important. Yeah. And in verse 45, to finish off, Jesus reveals then where the source of all good and, good and bad fruit comes from. He says this, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from what, which fills his heart. Jesus says pretty clearly here, the source of good and the source of bad in terms of action your actions and the way you speak is due to the heart. And just so you know, if you can do this every time, virtually every time. If you just substitute the word mind for heart in the Bible, you're going to have an accurate translation. The mind and the heart are interchangeable in the scriptures. Like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't let Israel go, he didn't give him plaque in his arteries. He affected his mind. The mind and the heart are interchangeable. So he's saying, the good man out of the good treasure of his mind brings forth what is good. It's how we think. That's what determines our behavior and the way we speak. Now what's important about this is that our culture has a very different understanding of the heart than God does. In Jeremiah, the prophet says this, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? In our culture, they say, follow your heart. Ever hear that? I've heard it. I was discipling someone about six years ago, and uh, they were, when I was talking to them about what it was going to require for them to, to uh, re rectify some relational issues in their life, I talked to them about Christ having to change their heart, and they said, well, but I've been told to always follow my heart. And I'm like, I know what you have. And I go, and you know, not to be offensive, but that's exactly why you're in the position you're in, because you've been given bad counsel. And Christ wants to heal this and remedy this for you. You see, Jesus, according to that thinking, says that, that to follow your heart is actually quite dangerous, because the heart here, in verses 45, is the source of trouble. But if Christ can get a hold of your heart and restore your heart, and you embrace his teachings and go his way, you can produce amazing fruit for him. In this context, if you want to produce fruit pleasing to God, embrace Jesus as your spiritual teacher and live the way he tells you to. And as we walk with him and we experience the fruit that comes from obeying him and his commands, we will be changed. We will become more like him and will be more fully trained. I'll finish with one more story. And this is no credit to me. This is a fully credit to the Lord's work in my life. 
And I talk about, this is blind spot again. I didn't see this in my life, but someone pointed it out, and when I did a self-reflection, like, these guys are exactly right. So apparently, apparently back in the day, when I first uh, became a Christian, or, or was thinking about who the Lord was, and sort of thinking about whether I should become a Christian, those early stages, um, I used to go with uh, coffee and uh, meet this guy for discipleship. And um, that lasted for a few months. And then the sort of relationship ended. But I would see him occasionally on the houseboat trips that we'd go on. Well, five or six years later, uh, I'd become a Christian by then. God had changed my life in radical ways. I was standing at the glass looking out onto the water. And this guy comes up to me that used to mentor me and sort of be my friend. He says, can I just talk to you? And I said, sure. He said, uh, I sure noticed a change in you the last few years. And I said, oh yeah, how's that? He goes, when we used to get together and you interacted with people, all you ever did was talk about yourself. He says, I haven't heard you talk about yourself once this weekend. He says, all you, talk, you, all you care about is how everyone else is doing and you engage in their life on their terms. And I didn't say a word, <laughs> like I was floored. Blind spot. I had no idea for five or six years. I just talked about myself when I got together with people. I had no idea about that. But people were gracious enough to probably just let me go on or, or whatever, or they didn't, or maybe, maybe they um, were glad when the conversation ended. You know, oh, thank goodness, actually done. Now we can talk about like other stuff, right? Maybe they thought that, but didn't tell me. But this guy revealed to me that there had been a huge fruit change, a huge fruit change because of what the Lord had done. I was no longer self-consumed. I was consumed by others and how they were doing. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about here. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he's been fully trained will be like his teacher. Question is, who are you going to follow? Got time for four lessons. Every week, I'm going to tell you what the parable is about. Otherwise, there's no point in parables. This is what I believe the parable to be about. There might be some nuances in words, but get the main gist. The parable teaches that true followers of Jesus will be evident by the way they live in obedience to his teaching. Listen, they came to hear him, and they came to be healed by him. Jesus says, you, I appreciate the following. It's great to see you all today. Glad you're here in church. Glad you're reading your Bibles. I'm glad you listen to podcasts. I'm glad you like 11.40 a.m. I'm glad you like the Christian community. I'm glad you like going over to people's house for dinner. I'm glad you like going camping at Bow, Little Bow River. I'm grateful for all of that. But listen, why do you call me Lord? Unless you're going to do what I say. This is the point of the parable. If he died for our sin, he took it upon himself to die for our sins on the cross, we owe it to him as a love response to honor him with the way we live, with our lives. If he died for the way we were living, right, we're sinful, if he died for our sin, why would we go on embracing that sin after the cross? It makes absolutely no sense. It makes a total mockery of the reason for his death. We live for him because he died for us. That is critical. 
to Christianity. Christianity is a way of life. It's not an intellectual belief. It's a way of life. I love this. Like, I was so grateful for this conversation. A a fellow who's Mohawk, his name is Jonathan Miracle, he uh, gave his testimony in Saskatoon, and uh, he he tries to bring um, Indigenous um, and Christian relationships together to try to bridge a gap between Christianity and the Native culture. And this guy's a solo follower of Jesus. Like, I love this guy. And he says he doesn't use the word Christian anymore. When he, talks, when he goes into native reserves as a Mohawk, he'll never tell people he's a Christian because think of all the atrocities that were done in terms of like, take over to the native people over the last 150 years. Things have been done in the name of Christ under the name of banner of Christianity that have destroyed the relationship of the native people with us. So when he goes on and they say to Jonathan, what do you believe? He says this, I follow the Jesus way. I follow the Jesus way. That's how he describes his faith. And everyone listens because the word Christian is not associated with that in the native culture. I've taken a cue from him. I haven't, I don't tell people I'm Christian anymore because that word doesn't mean anything in our culture. I tell everyone now when I talk to them that I follow Jesus way. I've adopted his language and it's been very good for me to to think in those terms. Christianity is a way of life. It'll be evident by the way we live in obedience to his teaching. Lesson number two. To avoid being hypocritical, we must confront the sin in our own lives before we judge the sin in another's. It's critical we do this, church. It helps check your own attitude for the reason why you want to talk to that person in the first place. If it's just to point out that they've got problems in their life and to find faults, you're no better off. You're self-righteous. You're judging the wrong way according to verse 37. You're doing the exact opposite of what God's warning about in 37. We're not to come to people with a spirit of conceit or self-righteous attitudes. And here's the thing. If you come in this way, in the right way, your words are more likely going to be received well because the person sees your heart and your concern. And because you've done the way with your own sin first and you've worked with that through with God, they can't turn around and say, yeah, but you're no different. They should be able to say, I understand why you're talking to me because you are different. And I could even learn from you because you've embraced Jesus' teaching in these ways as well. If we don't do this, the blind's leading the blind again. Okay? Very important we do this first church. Lesson three. The purpose behind all speck removal is restoration. Alright? We're not up to humiliate. We're not up to point out faults. We're not looking to belittle. We want what's best for that person between them and God in the Christian community. Here's what's really cool. In Matthew 18, verse 15, when it talks about how to do discipline in the church, it says this, you go privately first to your brother or sister and show them their sin. Now watch this. If they listen to you, you have won your brother or sister. You've won them. The purpose is not to belittle, it's to win them. How do you win them? Because they're restored. The sins, they've dealt with their sin. They've confessed, they've repented, they've moved on. 
The purpose is restoration. The purpose is to win your fellow brother or sister. Finally, in order to produce fruit pleasing to God, our hearts need to be changed. That starts, actually, not just starts, it's a process of life. That comes through embracing the Word of Christ. You embrace His teachings. As you embrace His teachings, He will change you from the inside out. I didn't become less self-consumed in my conversations because I uh, had strength on my own to figure that out. It was because God is so self-sacrificial in the way He lives and cares about other people's concerns first, that as time, as the years went on, I learned to start thinking about others ahead of myself. That's how the conversation started shifting. It had nothing to do with me reading, um, like, you know, Oprah Winfrey or listening to Joel Osteen or anything like that. It was just purely because Christ changed what was important in, in me. This is an ongoing process. You might be changed in a moment by being forgiven, but there's lots of heartache and lots of hard things need to be changed on the way through. Every stage of life gives you a new, a new way of changing. Those of us who are single, um, we think we're okay until we get married. And then we get married, and it's like, oh my goodness, I just learned a whole bunch of things that I didn't know about myself. Right? And you go through that whole, that whole spiel. And then, as you, you know, and then you mature in those areas, and then you have kids. And it's like, oh my goodness, I have to mature again in my heart in these areas. And all these stages of life, being, going into grandparents, retirement, all of these things re- re- reveal the ways in which the Lord has to change us. But thank goodness the scriptures are full of wisdom on how to do this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he's truth, then our hearts need to be changed to truth.